Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we visit the Heinemann Settlement School in Kentucky, whose cultural archives were damaged by historic flooding. I just wanted to cry, honestly, when I came in here. It was just such a disaster. We also learned some of the secrets behind Cuz's Uptown Barbecue, an award-winning fusion restaurant in Pounding Mill, Virginia. Praise for the older people. They know how to walk. <laughs> and we hear from Beth Macy, author of Dope Sick, which became a Hulu miniseries. Her new book, Raising Lazarus, continues the conversation about the opioid epidemic. My sense of optimism is that there are a lot of really amazing people doing incredibly heroic is not too strong a word to describe their works, to help the most marginalized among us. These stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Flooding in eastern Kentucky killed at least 39 people and destroyed hundreds of homes and businesses. Some of the region's cultural centers have been threatened too, like the Hyman Settlement School, which has preserved more than a century of Appalachian heritage. WFPL's Stephanie Wolf takes us to Hyman. The floodwaters were swift and merciless. At the Hyman Settlement School, they burst doors off the hinges and submerged historical records dating back to the 1800s in several feet of water. Careful, it's getting a little bit slippery. Executive Director Will Anderson shows what remains of the archive rooms. Initially, there was probably three, maybe four inches of mud in this hallway. Mud flecks empty drawers that stand against the wall. They used to hold journals, letters, photographs, documentation of Appalachian life. Anderson says they had protected the collection from the threat of fire. They weren't prepared for flooding like this. I just wanted to cry, honestly, when I came in here. It was just such a disaster. The Heinemann Settlement School recently marked 120 years. Two women founded it to educate the children of coal miners. Over time, it's adjusted its programs to address the community's needs, like food insecurity or supporting kids with dyslexia. The school's also celebrated for preserving local arts and culture through its writing residencies, music education, and archives. Now staff and volunteers are at work to save what they can. If we want to pull out that box, Anderson says some of the artifacts need expert inspection, so they had to find a way to stop further damage. You know, we just ran up to Lowe's and we bought five big chest freezers, you know, 18 cubic chest freezers, and we put what we could inside of those chest freezers, and it kind of suspends them in time. Some records had been digitized, but it remains unclear how much will be lost. One of the most valuable things about these kinds of archives is that often they negate the stereotypes that have been perpetuated. That's novelist Silas House, who grew up in eastern Kentucky. He says TV, film, and other media rarely show Appalachians in a nuanced way. And so to have this accurate historic record of us be so threatened is really devastating. House drove to Hyman to help with flood cleanup. He has his own history at the settlement school. He's attended and taught at the annual Appalachian Writers Workshop, which helps local writers take ownership of their own stories. Programs like that, says House, make the school a major contributor to the literary arts across the country. And just about anybody in the writing world would tell you that. I mean, I just can't imagine if they hadn't offered that program, and I just don't think I would have ever figured out how to become a writer in the way that I did. Director of Traditional Arts Education Sarah Kate Morgan typically spends her day teaching kids about Appalachian music and dancing. My role at the settlement kind of shifted into housing people here on campus and like making sure they had transportation so they could go apply for FEMA. And so I've been preoccupied with the humanitarian need here. Morgan hasn't yet been able to think about the potential cultural losses. Josh Mullins, who works at the school, thinks art has a role in the recovery. He's reaching out to this year's workshop writers to document their stories. About 75 of them were on campus when the floods hit. They want the community to participate as well. Hopefully as a healing process to express themselves and so also just for the history, you know, we lost more archives but we're working to rebuild it back. Part of that rebuilding is documenting this chapter in Appalachian history. I'm Stephanie Wolf in Heinemann.
Now, when Kentucky began flooding, Heinemann was hosting the Appalachian Writers' Workshop, a longtime annual gathering of literary artists. Bill Lynch spoke with Robert Geip and Amanda Sloan, two writers who were at the workshop when the rains came. Amanda Sloan said up until the rains began, her week at the Appalachian Writers' Workshop at the Hindman Settlement School in Hindman, Kentucky, had been a good one. It was beautiful as always. The workshop is always my favorite week of the year. It's been going since 2006. It's been a transformative experience for me as a writer and as a person. Uh, the community we've built there, the people that we've met, you know, you, you build a family that your chosen family outside of, of home. And uh, so it always feels sort of like a family reunion during that week. And we get to spend the week together with like-minded people talking about the things that we love. The Hindman Settlement School, founded 120 years ago, is a local institution and repository for Appalachian learning and culture. They teach traditional Appalachian arts and educate writers. The Appalachian Writers' Workshop was in its 45th year. Robert Guype had been at the workshop to visit with other writers. He said none of them expected to get caught in a flood. The rain came so hard and so fast, and in the dead of night, we were up talking and visiting when uh, Matt, Parsons came in at 2 o'clock in the morning and told us we better move our cars. The, the settlement school is on the banks of a Troublesome Creek there in Knott County, right right in downtown Hyman. And um, the creek had broken out of his banks, and his banks were unrecognizable. And by the time that Matt came to alert us to the danger, his car was already submerged in the lower parking lot. And then several other people who were attending their workshops, I know one friend lost a pickup truck, a rental car was lost, some personal cars were lost. I mean, it, was, it had come up so fast. And then that divided the campus, and so we couldn't, we couldn't call, or we couldn't get people from across the creek who were staying in some of the residential spaces across the creek to get over to move their vehicles. And so it was just kind of tragic sitting there watching stuff get carried off. Sloan was one of the workshop participants who was staying off campus. I can remember the text message kind of woke me up, and it was my friend Matt, and he said, my car is gone. And I was really groggy. I was kind of in that that in-between sleep and awake stage, so I didn't really uh, understand what he was saying. And I guess I dozed back off, and then my roommate shook me awake and said, you know, you have to get up. We have to we have to get out of here. So we got up about 3 o'clock that morning. I didn't really know what was going on at the time other than, you know, we were concerned about hill slides. So we went to another building there on campus that's a little bit, you know, higher up, that, but on a stable hill, not right close to the hillside. And we gathered on the front porch, and we sat there until the sun came up. Guy said people moved to higher ground. We were able to gather everybody in eventually, and uh, we retreated kind of up the mountain. Like, it was terrifying. In the moment, you don't think about the aftermath. You're just, like, trying to get through the night. But, of course, when, you know, we got up the next morning, it, it was a disaster area. Sloan said they couldn't see how bad the flooding was until after sunrise. We saw that the water had gotten up into um, the building where we have our our main building is sort of all the readings and things that evening. The offices are underneath. There's a little cabin on campus. It's called Uncle Saul's Cabin, and the water was um, up pretty high on the walls there. There's a historic footbridge that is sort of the image that we all associate with the Heinemann Settlement School. And we really couldn't tell if the bridge was even still standing. All we could see was debris. Some of us walked around town to see um, just how bad things were and, and what we saw. I mean, I, I really felt like... It was unlike anything I've ever seen. We saw people's cars had been swept away. Some cars were on their tops. Uh, we saw buildings that had just, you know, just debris and, and outside furniture and, you know, piled up along the sides. It was, it was a horrifying experience. When she was finally able to leave, Sloan said the destruction from the flood seemed to be everywhere. I saw homes that were literally, I mean, pieces of homes that were in the middle of the road. There was a set of steps, and I'm not sure what kind of building the steps came from. Very large set of steps right in the middle of an intersection. There was a coroner's car next to a lot of the debris. And then I got to Route 80, and you know, you're on the highway, and I'm coming home, and it sort of seems like things have cleared up, and you can't really tell, you know, that anything is wrong in that area. And then you drive upon where the small towns are on the side of the roads, and all I could see was water that was up 
as high as the road, the tips of the roof in the water. Everyone from the Appalachian Writers Workshop eventually made it home, though some had to deal with flooding in their home communities. The slow process of cleaning up, repairing, and seeing what could be saved began immediately as the waters receded. Emergency services arrived, aid came, people volunteered time, money, and energy to help. Robert Guyper returned to Hindman. He said he spoke with one of the rescue teams. It was a Middle Creek rescue team, and they'd been out, you know, busting their tails, saving people, getting people out of their houses. And I said, how long do y'all think y'all are going to be on this kind of this kind of high alert? And one of them said, forever. One of them said a year, and one of them said until the weatherman tells us to stop raining. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Bill Lynch. Since the devastating floods that hit eastern Kentucky, the Federal Emergency Management Agency and Small Business Administration have been helping with delivering aid. West Virginia has also seen flooding this year, amid one of the wettest summers on record. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Patrick Boland from FEMA and Lori Dana from the SBA about what they're doing to help provide relief in Kentucky. Tell me what's going on in, in eastern Kentucky right now. We're in the recovery phase now from the flooding disaster of July 28, 29. And so we have over 800 people. FEMA has 800 people on the ground. We've got nine disaster relief centers, disaster recovery centers set up so that people can visit them in, in uh, five of the affected counties, the five most affected counties. So we're really doing everything we can to reach out to people. We have DSA teams, which are disaster survivor assistance teams composed of four to five individuals who are walking neighborhoods and trying to reach people who have not been able to have access or have been unable to get out of their homes. So we're really focusing really hard on getting every getting to everybody we can. Um, that's the first part of it. And the second part is we have the uh, claims in process that we're trying to handle properly. So, Lori, you have anything you want to add? Um, just that we're, we're here to help the folks that had flooding in their homes and businesses. You know, heart goes out to everybody, and we, we really want to help make a difference and help them have a long-term, speedy recovery. FEMA's there for disaster relief, that sort of thing. Lori, you're with the SBA. You're, you're, you're more looking at kind of getting businesses back up and running. And, and how, so how does that all work? It's homeowners and renters, businesses of all sizes and nonprofits. Um, FEMA here, here to get people's um, safe and sanitary living conditions. Um, SBA is here for long-term recovery um, to people, um, build back their homes, um, replace the contents of their homes, uh, businesses, even if they uh, didn't have physical damage, if they had financial losses, there's assistance for them as well as being able to make repairs to their buildings and replace their assets, anything that was damaged by the flood. So um, it's it's a really a big partnership with FEMA and the SBA to, to help both short-term recovery as that's, well as long-term that's recovery. That's a good way to put it. Really, it's a two-part harmony. FEMA does disaster assistance to people. SBA is really capable of providing people the funding to do the longer-term repairs. I don't know if either one of you were in town for the, the 2016 floods here in West Virginia. One of the rumbles I heard at the time was people complaining about FEMA. FEMA's not acting fast enough. FEMA's denying claims, whatever. So explain to me what, what FEMA's process is and, and why people per- believe they're being denied unfairly claims and that sort of thing. There is some misunderstanding out there. The, the process of applying for assistance requires providing documentation, identification, proof of residency. And in, the, in this situation, um, because of the size of the losses of some people, the documentation is not complete. So we cannot provide complete assistance immediately to people. We try to provide immediate assistance for important needs like rental assistance, other needs assistance for clothing, et cetera. Uh, and as we progress along here, we're gonna get more people's uh, claims completed. We've already distributed over $30 million in assistance uh, to survivors in this in this particular disaster already. So it'll, it's going to take time to work through the process. We're doubled up on it. You know, we realize we have to get, you know, work faster and get the money to people faster. The need's great here. I mean, the need's just so great. Folks don't have to wait for their insurance to settle to um, to apply 
a disaster loan, they can, they, the faster they apply, the faster that SBA can help them. Uh, so we just really encourage people to go into the disaster recovery centers, talk to FEMA, talk to um, the SBA representatives and get started on their recovery. There's been some significant flooding here in the Charleston, West Virginia area. What's the process for elevating a, a local re- regional emergency into a federal emergency? The governor of West Virginia has declared a, nas- a, a state disaster. The governor can then turn around and request from the, from the federal government to the president to request a national disaster be declared. At that point, uh, FEMA will go in and do evaluation of the disaster, the scope of it. And then the president would determine to issue the uh, federal disaster or not. What's, what are the criteria? Is it based on property damage? Or what's the, how, how's that determined? There's individual losses, right? That we, we can see homes and property. There's also public assistance, which is damaged public property, roads and bridges and government buildings, and also nonprofits that have experienced losses for services of one kind or another. So those are the two categories, public assistance and individual assistance. And if those those losses meet a certain threshold set by the government statutorily, um, at that point, the federal government can declare a national disaster. Uh, Laura, you mentioned the other day when we spoke um, that even businesses outside of the disaster area, but who feel like they've lost income revenue because of the disaster, can also apply for, for SBA assistance. If you're in West Virginia and those contiguous counties next to Kentucky, uh, you can apply for um, working capital to help pay the bills you would have been able to pay if that flooding hadn't happened. So any of the contiguous counties around the declared um, counties are eligible. Despite these historic floods, the local newspaper in Whitesburg, Kentucky has continued its work unabated. In fact, The Mountain Eagle is delivering the paper for free to keep locals informed. The paper has covered Letcher County for more than a century. And so amid the floods, the paper's small staff did what it's always done. Tell the stories of the region and the people who live there. WFPL's Stephanie Wolf stopped by its office in Whitesburg. The Mountain Eagle has been free since the floods. Editor and publisher Ben Gish says he'll do that as long as he can. I can't go broke doing it, but I feel like we need to get the information out to people. You're covering your own community. You're living the experience as well. How has it been to cover the floods in light of all of that? Exhausting and emotional, and I feel so bad for people who have lost everything. I mean, everywhere you look, hidden places, it's unbelievable. Gish took over the paper's operations from his late parents who spent their entire journalism careers in Kentucky. They bought the paper in the uh, fall of 1956 and uh, took over January 57. Then the 57 flood came, which before this was considered the worst, but this is 10 times that. The Mountain Eagle's recent flood coverage has ranged from information on FEMA applications to where to get supplies and stories on why floods are getting worse. They've dug into the role strip mining has played in flooding. One headline read, quote, an unnatural disaster. It's killed us plus all the years, and the silt from the strip mines filling up the rivers and creeks here, and there's no place for the water to go, except into people's houses. And all those huge corporations that came up here made millions of dollars they're gone now. We're left with their, you know, with what they left us with, which is uh, no jobs and ruined topography and just a greedy ground for disasters like this. Some responses on social media have perpetuated stereotypes about Kentuckians, especially those in Appalachia. The people writing those posts insinuate that the flood victims are ignorant to climate science and say that's demonstrated in the state's re-election of Republican Senators Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. They, like many other Republican politicians, have opposed progressive climate policies, such as the Green New Deal. Kentucky is a conservative state. It went for President Donald Trump in 2020 by more than 62 percent. But in the past, Kentucky has elected Democrats at the state and national level. Gish says there's more diversity of thought here than outsiders realize. 
it's a disheartening to know that your fellow countrymen could be that callous. Do you feel like you're also part of sort of this larger push to tell a much more complex and nuanced understanding of the people of this region? I was kind of taught by my parents to do that. And the reason this region started turning to Trump and folks like that is because the Democrat Party left it behind. This county used to be hugely Democrat. Basically, people feel like nobody gives a damn about it. A lot of people have worked really hard to make these towns livable and nice and tourist-friendly. The people in charge of that tell me that it is going to be built back better than ever before. I hope they're right. But I pray they are. That's Mountain Eagle publisher and editor Ben Gish speaking with WFPL's Stephanie Wolf. Coming up, we head to Pounding Mill, Virginia, to dig in at one of the most acclaimed out-of-the-way restaurants in Appalachia. One of the things on their menu is Southern Chinese egg rolls with American cheese. No, actually, one of our old staff uh, came up with the idea. She wanted to put a slice of cheese, and the thing that was around was Velveeta. So after we tasted it, we thought, wow, that's good. <laughs> that's after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. People love to argue over which barbecue sauce is most authentic. Vinegar, tomato, or mustard. But Cuz's Uptown Barbecue in Tazewell County, Virginia, is distinguished by something entirely different. For one thing, its food is inspired by Asian cuisine and local mountain specialties. You can find things on its menu, like morel mushrooms, cheesy egg rolls, and country ham caprese. Folkways reporter Connie Bailey-Kitts and her family recently stopped in at Cuz's for dinner. Connie brings us this story. It's a little past 5.30, and the gravel parking lot of Cuz's Uptown Barbecue is full of cars, vans, trucks, and motorcycles. Customers are already lining up outside this big purple, orange, and blue barn with its attached red brick silo sitting just off the edge of a four-lane highway. Just in front of the restaurant's entrance, two life-size ceramic pigs stand like sentries. A pig in a tutu stands atop the gatepost. Customers are leaving as we go in. That door's heavy. I know it'll break your arm. It's heavy because it's the original double-hung oak door of this former dairy barn. Once inside, paintings of pigs morph into dragons. Red, pink, and yellow Chinese lanterns hang from the dining room ceiling. There's a string of masks and cartoon characters running the length of the bar. You could easily think you're in a folk art museum. That's Yvonne Thompson, who owns Cuz's, seating customers at one of the 40 hand-painted tables or booths. When we first opened in 79, it was just, we had four tables, and there were lines out the door on the porch. The lines still go out the door. People arrive by all modes of transportation, from hikers on foot to CEOs who come in by helicopter. As the cashier rings up tabs under the eye of a life-size polar bear, 
busboys maneuver around paper mache pigs. And of course, we're into pop culture. Pee Wee Herman, uh, uh, who, who else? Superman, Hulk Hogan, Elvis. <laughs> Most of this art was either drawn, painted, or curated by Yvonne's late husband, Mike, an art history major who co-founded the restaurant. He loved animals, period. There's uh, this cow, but he couldn't stand it because it was too plain, so he painted it with polka dots. Other art in the restaurant came as gifts from customers, like a life-size cutout of Elvis in pink overalls holding a pig in his arms. Somebody stole that one time. It was sticking out of the convertible as they left the parking lot. But then they brought it back a few years later. <laughs> they felt bad. See, everything in here has a history. I was curious about that history, especially since the mixture of Asian and Appalachian seems pretty impossible to miss. Native hickory wood alongside elephant bamboo, woodcuts alongside a silk Chinese embroidery of chickens. Turns out Yvonne is Chinese and grew up in Hong Kong. She wanted to go to college in the United States. And my uncle had a really good Chinese restaurant in St. Louis, Missouri. He, he was my sponsor and I came and lived with him and started working in this restaurant from day one. He not only taught her about restaurants, but he also taught her life lessons. Like the time Yvonne saw an employee put sugar in her purse. I said, look, uncle, she's taking sugar from you. He said, look away, look away. He said, she's my best cook, my best worker. She can have my sugar. Think of that lesson, yeah. Yvonne graduated from the University of Missouri in journalism. After she moved to Richlands, Virginia for her first reporting job, she met and married Mike Thompson. It was Mike's cousin who suggested they start a restaurant in Mike's old family barn sitting empty by the road, so they named it Cuz's. Barbecue was hard to find back then, so it became Cuz's Uptown Barbecue. But if he was the only one running it, it probably would fold in a year because he didn't know how to run a business. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I'm the business person and have the organization and the skills, but he was the flair, the, the fun part. <laughs> That's the yin and the yang. He the yang and I'm the yin. In the Chinese philosophy of yin and yang, the point is that differences can work together. And Yvonne says she and Mike were the best examples of that. Mike died four years ago in an accident, and Yvonne thought strongly about retiring. But she knew how Cousins had become so much a part of the community's life, and she thought Mike would have wanted her to carry on. He's probably still speaking up to us down from the grave. <laughs> Mike's humor is on the menu covers, where each cartoon character or meme reflects his wit. Open the menu, and you'll see it in the food descriptions, too. Like the macaroni and cheese, you can order either plain or skanky. That was the word Yvonne says just came into Mike's head when he needed a way to describe blue cheese. Well, it was a funny word. People are always like, what? But then they laugh about it. It's early morning at Cuz's, and the kitchen's been buzzing since 5 a.m. Yvonne is crimping a pie crust of one of her popular desserts, and she works right alongside her staff, many of whom have been with her for decades. Praise for the older people. They know how to work. <laughs> but there are plenty of young faces, too, among the 30-some people on the payroll. From baby boomers to Gen Zers, Cuz's staff call each other family, figuratively and literally. Like 65-year-old dishwasher Judy Conley, who works alongside her 21-year-old niece, Megan Dye. Judy remembers Megan as a baby. They, when they first brought her to Cousins, she was about this long, and I got to hold her. And now I'm working with her. On Mondays, when the task is to make a thousand egg rolls, the kitchen crew becomes the kitchen brigade, and anyone can get recruited to help. Egg rolls have been on Cousins' menu from the start. The dipping sauce recipe came from Yvonne's uncle, but the version that Yvonne calls a southern Chinese egg roll came later. No, actually one of our old staffer came up with the idea. She liked cheese and she wanted to put a slice of cheese in the thing that was around was Velveeta, so <laughs> that's how it came about. 
And after we tasted it, we thought, wow, that's good. <laughs> good enough to earn a mention in a food exhibit at the Museum of Chinese in America in New York City. Back by the grill, the brick ovens and the barbecue smoker, award-winning chef Mike Oder, known as Mikey, has just finished cutting up steaks. This is the prime rib. Just trim it up a little bit. He's worked at Cuz's for 38 years, and now he's also Yvonne's business partner. He's proud of how the staff work together. Because everybody's been here so long, they automatically, they just know what needs done. But everybody here's got their own personalities and they're, you know, we all click good. You know, it's like a family. Part of Chef Mikey's job is passing down techniques and shortcuts to the younger guys cooking the meats, like Taylor Cole. He started working when he was 15. He has a degree in applied mathematics from Radford University, and he chooses to work here rather than use his degree to teach. But as for applying that math in the kitchen? Simple math ain't really my strong suit, more of like calculus. I'm more, I'm way better at calculus than simple math for sure. I'm like, I'm much rather go do some calculus and then break some uh, tablespoons or teaspoons down. <laughs> So I'm always like, Mikey, will you do this for me? Because I'm confusing myself trying to figure it out. <laughs> he gets satisfaction out of working here. I love the rush that you get from like when you get in 20 steaks filled up on your grill and you're, everyone's just screaming at you. I love it. And I love, you know, making great food for people, people enjoying it, them telling you they enjoyed it, knowing that you made that. I don't know, it's a lot of reward. Stepping out the back door, I see the restaurant's garden not far from the highway. In a good growing season, Yvonne says it allows cousins to serve exceptionally fresh food, like the corn. We pick them the day we use them, and you can't hardly buy corn like that. It'd be several days old at least. We're trying to conserve our effort to only grow things that we cannot buy. One of those heirlooms ends up in an appetizer where Cuz's adds an Appalachian twist to the Italian caprese salad, pairing country ham with fresh mozzarella, the basil, balsamic vinegar, and tomato. And this tomato is special because the seed was a gift from a customer whose family had grown it locally for over a hundred years. And over the years, it's these kinds of community ties that have sustained Cuz's and been part of its resilience, most recently through COVID sicknesses. Last Saturday, they were closed because they had several employees sick. But there's a group of us told them, we will come and wash dishes, we will prepare salads, we can clean tables, anything to keep from closing. <laughs> That's Wanda Lowe, who comes in with her husband almost every Saturday for dinner. And she remembers another time when Cousins was forced to close. In 2008, a fire destroyed large areas of the kitchen. It damaged the roof, wiring, and furniture. It was actually the second time a major fire had spread through Cousins. It brought back the despair and made many wonder if this might close the book on the restaurant's history. Yvonne's son, Arthur, had been home for the summer after just graduating from the College of William and Mary. He was the one who came to us while we were standing outside, seeing the place burning down. He said, you have to rebuild. This is our legacy. I will stay and help rebuild this place and not take a job until you can open back up. So he stayed and walked through the winter, and then he left when we were able to open the door. He found a job then. As I got ready to leave, Yvonne and I browsed through the public library's county cookbook that included one of Yvonne's recipes, along with histories of restaurants. I asked Yvonne what she would want Cousins to be remembered for. You know, treating people the way you want to be treated, walking in their shoes, and it, it, maybe it's like an older philosophy. So I think I think maybe the two words that sum up this place is passion and compassion. What do you think? And a heart. And to me, that's the starting point of a good business. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Bailey Kitts in Pounding Mill, Virginia.
Late summer and fall are prime time for county and state fairs. People come out for country music concerts, funnel cakes, and a ride on the tilt-a-whirl. It's also a place where folks can see traditional crafts and the biggest and best from local farms. WVPB's Randy Yoey visited the State Fair of West Virginia in August and brings us this story from one of the fair's favorite attractions, the Dairy Birthing Center. In a fair exhibit barn, complete with bleachers for an audience, 20 pregnant cows, all at or near full term, wait to give birth. Dairy Birthing Center exhibit director Remington Perkins is owner-operator of Perk Farm Organic Dairy. He started breeding 60 cows on his nearby Frankfort, West Virginia farm last November. Trying to play play the odds game. We brought 20, and as these calve, we'll leave some of the calves here for the kids to play with and take the cows, the moms, home and start milking them and bring more pregnant moms down. Other fair activities happen on schedule, say at 10, noon, and 2. Perkins says there's no timetable for giving birth. So he waits for the telltale signs to cue a fairgrounds-wide announcement. As soon as we see a water bag come out, we know that she'll calve within an hour. And once that happens, we'll call the announcer at the fair here. They'll put it over the PA system, and the crowd shows up. Perkins says the exhibit allows non-farm folks to better understand where their food comes from. He has an explanation for those who get upset that they take newborn calves right away from their moms. When we explain to them that these cows are bred to give enough milk for five, six, seven, eight calves, and if we only left her calf on her, the the mom would get sick. The calf would get sick from having too much milk. And we want the calves to think of us as mom. Perkins is a third-generation farmer. His family dairy goes back to 1942. He says to survive in today's corporate-dominated agriculture economy, the small dairy farm needs a niche, like producing organic milk. Organic Valley is the company that we sell our milk to. You can buy it in the local Walmart and stuff. And that has made a huge difference in our farm. It's, uh, it's a flat milk price. We know at the beginning of the year what we're going to get paid all year long. And it's, it has stabilized our farm and allowed us to start investing back into the farm and bring the next generation back to the farm successfully. So when you're at the state fair, listen for that PA announcer's call to the Dairy Birthing Center barn and see something brand new enter the world. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie at the state fair in Fairleigh, West Virginia. The Hulu miniseries Dope Sick is a fictional take on the very real and very devastating stories of people affected by the opioid crisis and the companies that helped create it. The show's been nominated for 14 Emmys. It's based on the 2018 book Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America by Roanoke journalist Beth Macy. Now, Macy's back with a new book on the issue, Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Opioid Crisis. It looks at the ways people are trying to help, through harm reduction, through needle exchange programs, and through attempts to hold drug manufacturers accountable. Macy talked with Jeff Bossert of member station Radio IQ. I start the book next to a dumpster in a McDonald's parking lot with a nurse practitioner who's seeing a person in active use. He's never had care before, and he's going to die if he keeps using. And Tim Nolan, this heroic nurse practitioner, says two things. One, you can get better. Most Americans think you can't. You think you can't, but you can. And two, and this is the key to getting better, don't disappear. That means he's going to get him on these life-saving medications. And even if he relapses in the next week, still meet him back here the week after. And if you can't make it to me, I'll come to you. Just give me a text. And a lot of people would think of that as coddling. But 40% of people with opioid use disorder say they can't get better. They're hopeless about it. And that's because they've been treated so poorly before when they've tried to interact with our systems of care. Where is the argument at in terms of harm reduction and what some people are catching on to and many others are not. Where do you think the sense of optimism is now? My sense of optimism is that there are a lot of really amazing people doing incredibly heroic is not 
too strong a word to describe their works, to help the most marginalized among us. My frustration is that in particularly in distressed rural areas where the epidemic, by the way, has lasted the longest, where it began, where they have the fewest resources to address it, many of those areas um, are perhaps not inclined. Um, for instance, Charleston, West Virginia, which has is having right now this huge spike in HIV cases. Uh, they basically outlawed needle exchange uh in many of the communities there, or they regulated it to a point where it's practically outlawed. And that's really concerning when the CDC says it has the most concerning outbreak in the nation. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen. Harm reduction is kind of a counterintuitive thing. You're going to give these drug users needles. Isn't that going to enable their use? Well, it turns out no, because they've been so far left out of our systems of care that they don't trust the systems anymore. And so you've got to go to them where they are, build up trust. And eventually, we know that people who go to needle exchanges are five times more likely to enter treatment. The pandemic forced many people into isolation and certainly hurt this issue. So how much is COVID-19 the last couple of years and maybe the political divide stolen headlines from, from this crisis? Right. And a lot of people think there's opioid fatigue, as they call it. Um, there's a lot of articles out practically every week about this morass of super complex opioid litigation. That's a hard thing to follow. I try to break that down. About a third of the book is about the quest for accountability told through these the lens of these activists that are trying to hold Purdue Pharma's feet to the fire to make them pay for creating this epidemic. And then we know that overdose deaths, every time they announce a new tally, Uh, They've gone up from the year before, and a lot of that is COVID-related. People were using drugs with no one there to Narcan them or were simply so um, depressed by job losses and whatnot, you know, that many people in long-term recovery even return to use. What hope is there left to try to hold the Sackler family account after bankruptcy court and paying billions to gain immunity from future litigation? Well, that's perfectly put, Jeff. That's what they're doing. It's like a traffic ticket. If uh, you and I were caught selling uh, some user amount of dope at the subway uh, station or at the bus station, we would be in jail, but not for the creators of this crisis. They have given up their company, Purdue Pharma, and have pledged to give $6 billion to help solve the opioid crisis. That sounds like a lot of money. Well, they've made more than $13 billion. They've stocked a lot of it away in offshore accounts that people like attorney generals of Massachusetts and New York can't get their hands on. And they're rich enough that they've been able to hire $1,800 an hour lawyers to protect them, PR consultants to teach them, help them break the rules that they agreed to abide by when they pleaded guilty to fraudulent marketing in 07 and again in 2020. This is what we call billionaire justice, alas. But there are still people working to hold their feet to the fire, including the trustee's office of the bankruptcy court under AG Merrick Garland. The the case is still in uh, at appellate and we're expecting a ruling any day now. And there's also talk of criminal indictments for the first time in years um, of the Sackler family. You know, this wasn't a driverless car. Somebody ran this company and those people should be held to account. You mentioned a couple of times in the book, President Biden's drug czar. He's had a mixed record regarding needle exchange programs, but claims to now back harm reduction. And I saw recently that he was now behind such programs, admitted to mistakes as the health commissioner in West Virginia. So I'm wondering what impact he might have if he's really changing his approach. Right. Uh, Dr. Raul Gupta did. um, I mean, I thought it was great when he admitted that he had been wrong. That's rare for a politician these days. What I say at the end of the book, where I really do give some policy prescriptions uh, based on my 10 years of recovering this issue off and on, that the drug czar's office should be elevated to a cabinet-level position as it was prior Back in the early 70s, under President Nixon, believe it or not, before he invented the war on drugs, he actually had a system of care for returning veterans who were from the Vietnam War who were addicted to heroin so that anyone in any community could go to a walk-in clinic, 
uh, and get on methadone if they need it and also get help with their housing and social supports. And that's what we need to get back to. I'm also wondering about the emotional toll on you. You've lost a lot through writing Dope Sick in this book, Friends or know people who have lost. And I'm wondering about needing better boundaries for yourself. I mean, where are you at emotionally after all this writing? Yeah, um, I was so bereft after Dope Sick, after we lost Tess Henry, because I had really followed her story, and especially her mother's journey, very closely. And I wasn't going to write about it again, frankly, because I was so having this, I don't know, secondary trauma, my doctor thought. Just to provide some context here, a few years ago, Macy wrote about Tess Henry repeatedly being denied evidence-based care for addiction in the Roanoke area or being stigmatized when attending 12-step meetings. She had been attending a treatment facility in Las Vegas but wound up back on the streets still fighting addiction. Henry was murdered at age 28 in 2017. But then as I started traveling around talking about Dope Sick, I started seeing these really innovative things, and that felt like I was being part of the solution to continue to write about the solution. So it's actually very healing for me to go spend time with people who have really figured out the best ways to get this community access to care. Very healing, very inspiring, very hopeful, although, you know, the big picture is still we are not offering treatment at the scale to match the scale of the crisis. So as a journalist, you know, it makes you feel good when you're trying to educate your community about the best way forward. And if you see some of the change, I guess you're wishing for, is there another book in all this? I mean, if I had an idea that I thought was worth a third book, I kind of see my first book, Factory Man. I see this kind of as a trilogy, Factory Man, followed by Dope Sick, followed by Raising Lazarus. At the end of reporting Factory Man, so this would go back to what, 2012, I started to see the epidemic really roaring up, particularly in these small towns. And I went back to the Roanoke Times for a bit, and I did this three-part series. It was the first time writing about what we then called the heroin epidemic, what we now call the overdose crisis, because it is a crisis of multiple kinds of opioids. Um, and I actually pitched dope sick back then. You know, I didn't end up writing it until... 2018. But people in New York who were my gatekeepers, my editor and my agent, didn't really see it as a story. Um, and in fact, one said uh, they thought Roanoke was just late getting it. They had had the heroin crisis in New York City in the 90s. So it was a slow simmering story that a lot of people in the cities missed. And it wasn't until 2015 when that data came out to show that we were uh, experiencing a life expectancy declines for the first time since World War One. did people really start to start investigating this. Well, is there another project unrelated that's that's up ahead for you? Um, I'm thinking about doing a book next about why, as Americans, we can't really have Thanksgiving dinner with our extended families anymore. So I'm still pondering that, still trying to figure my way into that really sticky wicket of issues about the divide in this country. We are also a few weeks from the Emmy Awards, which I assume you'll be attending. Yes. And I'm just wondering, certainly it's great whatever awards Dope Sick, the, the Hulu series, will win. Um, there have already been honors for Michael Keaton, but I'm wondering what attention this will help bring to the issue when you have an Emmy, potentially Emmy-winning series uh, come September. Yeah. I mean, the show has been great. It could have been a disaster, right? But we have this brilliant showrunner and creator, Danny Strong, who got how important it was to get the message across that there are life-saving treatments. And so when you see an A-list actor like Michael Keaton struggle to get on buprenorphine and then struggle to get on methadone and then eventually becoming a leader in his community, that is the narrative that we could have if we wanted. And so like the best feedback we've had on the show has been from family members who said things like, after I watched your show, I picked up the phone and I called my addicted son for the first time in three years. So it's starting to change that Overton window, that, that thinking away from the drug war mentality that these people are more moral failures uh, to these are human beings, our loved ones, and maybe they've caused us harm in the past. But if we can help them access the right kind of treatment, maybe we can put our families back together again. That was Radio IQ's Jeff Bossert speaking with Beth Macy. Her new book is Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Opioid Crisis. She's currently touring around the new book, including stops here in Appalachia. 
If you want to learn about a recovery program in your community, please call the free and confidential treatment referral hotline 1-800-662-HELP or visit findtreatment.gov. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Watch House, Chris Knight, June Carter Cash, Amethyst Kia, and Tyler Childers. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Or leave us a message at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook. Visit wvpublic.org slash Inside Appalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.